This morning's Bible reading is from Romans 3, 1 to 20. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the judge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Uh, Friends, it's great to see you all here together uh, today. If we haven't met, my name's Duncan, pastor here at Trinity South Coast. It's great to have you along. Um, I wonder though, as we start today, uh, I wonder if you have ever been totally lost for words. Have you ever had the moment where you're just totally lost for words, you have no idea what to say? We can be stuck for something to say. It's often when something really good happens, right, or something really bad happens. Uh, But there's a kind of silence that happens when you get caught red-handed doing something, right? Uh, Doing something you know you shouldn't. Uh, I went to a boarding school for the last few years of my time at school. Uh, and uh, we, I spent time in, in big dorm rooms with you know, uh, 20 beds around, uh, re- really massive rooms, and we used to play soccer in the dorm rooms. Uh, uh, the only problem was that, that all ball games were, of course, banned for obvious reasons. And I have this distinct memory of one time of being in full flight, right, in, in this kind of little soccer game with some, some friends around the boarding uh, room. Uh, what I didn't notice, though, was our housemaster, the, the kind of teacher who was looking after the boarding house, kind of just very quietly opening the door and walking in, uh, everyone else saw him. And they all magically just suddenly turned around and started uh, being in the middle of doing something else, you know, kind of, of course, I'm just sitting here on my bed reading my book, or I was just about to leave, sir. Uh, unfortunately, I was the only one who didn't notice our housemaster, and the teacher kind of quietly came in, all the other boys did. Uh, uh, I had my head down looking at the ball, because I was about to do a really great shot. Uh, and was running up to the centre of the room. I kicked it to someone who was in my peripheral vision, who I assumed was playing. 
Uh, but of course, it turned out to be uh, the housemaster, Mr. Clark. Uh, at that moment, a million things went through my mind. Uh, I scrambled for an ex- explanation, uh, but of course, there was none, right? There was absolutely no explanation I could give, no, nothing to say. No one, and at that point, no one said anything. No one had to, right? Everything was very clear as day. I had no defence. The teacher simply picked up the ball, said a few stern words, confiscated it. It happened to be a, really, uh, a brand new, really nice, shiny soccer ball that one of my friends had bought uh, and confiscated it for, I think, the rest of the year or something, some uh, long period of time. Well, friends, it's a small example, but uh, there are times, aren't there, when our guilt, our, when we do something so obviously wrong that we're just stuck, right? We're lost for words. We have nothing to say in our defence. Uh, friends, we are returning after... We've had a couple of weeks of a break from reading through this incredible letter of Paul uh, to the church in Rome, the letter to the Romans. Uh, we uh, are returning to it today after a couple of weeks doing a few other things. If you've been here, you'll be aware of that. Uh, the part we're reading today uh, is the last major section, uh, the last part, sorry, in one of the major sections in Paul's letter. Uh, and we'll see how by the end of it, by the time you get to verse 20 of what we just read, by the time you get down to verse 20, this position of Silence <laughs> of having nothing to say, nothing to say in our defence, is exactly where Paul says that uh, all of us actually, <laughs> all of us, stand before God. Friends, um, uh, it's another heavier sort of passage. The last couple of passages we've looked at have been like that, and we need God's help for it. So I'm going to pray again. So uh, if you could pray with me, I'll, I'll pray for us. Uh, our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do need your help now. We pray for each of us. Father, please, by your Spirit, so move in us that we will hear this word for us, that it might sink deeply into us and transform us. Uh, Lord, keep us from being those who, who uh, speak words of self-defense before you. Help us to see the reality of our situation outside of Christ. Uh, make us truly humble before your word now, we pray. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, friends, before we dive into this passage, uh, chapter 3, the first 20 verses of that, before we dive into that, uh, just a quick Cook's tour. If you've got your hand out there, you'll, you'll see um, a bit of an outline of the story so far, just where we've come very quickly. The, uh, the, the first part of Paul's letter, right at the start, he writes this incredible introduction uh, outlining this great announcement, this great announcement of the gospel. The gospel had gripped and captivated Paul. It had transformed his life. This great announcement that we saw was something that brought great joy. This incredible news about Jesus, about his life and his death and his resurrection. And right at the end of that section, we saw how Paul's not ashamed of this gospel, this announcement to the world about uh, Jesus being raised up from the dead uh, as the risen king of kings. Uh, he knows that this gospel is God's power to save everyone who believes. He knows that in this gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. We, we saw that um, a, a few weeks ago when we looked at the first part of Romans. And then uh, as we read through, you, may have, you might have felt this, we kind of talked about this on the way through. There's a bit of a surprise in verse 18 of chapter 1. 
we go from this great outline of the, the announcement of the gospel uh, and Paul starts to straight away, uh, talking about this gospel, he, he does something that perhaps we wouldn't expect. And we talked to then, it's kind of like what he's doing is laying out this black velvet backdrop, this black velvet backdrop uh, onto which he's going to place the jewel of the gospel, uh, the jewel of this great news of Jesus. Uh, he's laying out the reality, this black backdrop. Uh, the first thing that he says in verse 18, after talking about this incredible life-giving, joy-giving news, well, we read it, didn't we? It's news about the wrath of God. He says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Uh, Paul goes on to kind of lay out this black velvet backdrop uh, and we need to hear it, friends. The reason the news of Jesus is so wonderfully good is that it is spoken into a situation that is, that is so terribly bad, so terribly dark, seriously dark. Instead of worshipping God, our creator, humanity has turned to worship created things, to idols, and that turn away from God puts everything out of kilter. It disorders everything. Paul lists off a whole series of ways, the way in which our disordered worship flows through to every part of our life, our pursuit of sex outside of marriage, our broken relationships with other people, our broken relationships in our families. All of this, Paul says, brings humanity under the very real wrath of God. But of course we saw, if you are with us a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2 before we get here. Uh, and we saw that time um, uh, in chapter 2, we saw there was a group who heard that description in chapter 1 and nodded along, if you remember, uh, if you're here, they, this group that were nodding along all the way, this description, who, these people who were outraged by other people's wickedness, but they were blind to their own, <laughs> blind to their own. They thought that they were set apart from everyone else. Uh, and Paul writes that they, they then pass judgment on everyone else. Uh, Paul says when they do that, they're just condemning themselves because they who pass judgment on someone else do the same things. Um, they were religious people, we find out as, as we read through, who thought that because they were religious, they were exempt. They had a kind of free pass from the judgment of God. Um, we saw at the end of chapter 2 how Paul has a particular group in mind here uh, and it would have been shocking for the people who first read this letter, this particular group at the end of chapter 2. Uh, not even the Jewish people were accepted uh, from the judgment of God. The people of the judge, the people of the judge were just as much under his judgment as anyone else. They couldn't claim their religious identity belonging to the nation of Israel. They couldn't claim circumcision, as Paul goes on to talk about in chapter 2, uh, as a free pass that meant that they automatically got in regardless of how they lived their lives. Okay, so <laughs> this is where we come to this point. The great announcement of the gospel, a shift, an unexpected shift, this laying out of the black velvet backdrop, the wrath of God. Paul's already dealt with this one defence that someone who hears about God's wrath might give. But I'm 
I'm a good religious person, right? How could God be angry at me? I do all the right stuff. Well, he dealt with that last week. And then we get to this chapter, chapter 3, and it seems to me this is a really brilliant move that Paul makes right here. A really brilliant move. You could get to this point and still be resisting the claim that you are under God's judgment. You might not have lived the extreme outworking of idolatry that we read about in chapter 1. You might have lived a pretty good life, uh, but you might, on the other hand, not be particularly religious either. You, uh, in fact, you too kind of uh, uh, will look down on religious hypocrisy, people who claim that their religion makes them set apart from everyone else and uh, become arrogant and judgmental. Uh, you might not have the, religi- the religious exception, but perhaps you use the brain, the brain God has given you to fight against him. You hear the news of God's claim on you, his wrath against your sin. You don't use the religious exception that we looked at last time, which, to be honest, isn't very popular is, uh, today anyway. Um, you use the logical exception, as Paul goes on to talk about here. I just don't see how that can be the case, Paul. And here are the reasons why, right? Of course, God could not be angry at me. Uh, friends, uh, I think it's important to say here that what Paul is talking about here, it's not a kind of anti-intellectual Christianity. He's not saying don't use your brain to reason. Uh, Christians should have a fundamentally positive attitude about the pursuit of knowledge because we know the God of truth who made the world to reflect his own truth and his own beauty and his own goodness. But like any of God's good, good gifts, our ability to reason uh, can be turned into an idol and can, our reasoning can be used to fight against God just as much as our religion can be. I think that's what's on view here at the start of chapter 3. Uh, so Paul, if, if you've got your Bibles open, that'll really help you as we kind of dig into this chapter. Um, Paul imagines this conversation partner, someone he's talking with, um, who argues back uh, at him. He says, uh, this, this person says, how can you say, Paul, how can you say that being a Jew gives you no advantage before God? That is ridiculous. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, should be up on the screen there. Uh, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. Uh, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Paul says to this person who says, what? You know, you can't say that being a Jew has no advantage before God. What a ridiculous thing to say. Paul says, well, of course the Jews are incredibly privileged. Of course they have an advantage. They had the very words of God. They had the very words of God. It's easy, perhaps, for us to gloss over that. Uh, but Paul says that to have the words of God is an unbelievable privilege. Uh, this phrase has been ringing through my head this week and it's made me reflect on how differently I would approach the Bible uh, if I really and deeply believed more than I do that these are the very words of God. The very words of God. Here are the very words of the God of the universe. The Jews had the Old Testament scriptures and Paul's saying that is incredibly valuable to have those words of God. But the problem was 
they were unfaithful to the words of God that they were given. They were unfaithful to those words. And so Paul's imaginary sort of conversation partner goes on. He says, well, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? So will their unfaithfulness sort of cut under God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. The conversation goes on in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what will we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim, that we say, let us do evil so that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Friends, uh, what's going on here? I'll, I'll, I'll try and sort of work through um, a, a few things in this, in this little section. Uh, do you see what Paul's conversation partner is doing here? He's coming up with argument after argument to wiggle out of God's judgment. If the Jews were unfaithful... Doesn't that mean their God is unfaithful? No. Paul says he's proved right. But if us being wrong makes his righteousness stand out more, how can we be judged for that? Do you see what the conversation partner is trying to do? How can we be judged if me being wrong makes his glory shine more, his righteousness shine more? Surely I'm, not, you know, that, that's, I'm doing him a favour by doing all this wrong stuff. No, Paul says, God's going to judge the world and he will do what is right. And in the end, the end, the person says, ah, but my sin enhances God's glory, so I should sin more, which is you know, just the progression of this train of thoughts. Um, Paul's going to return to this issue in chapter 6, so you've got to hang in there to get his full answer to this question about why God's grace to us, which is totally free and undeserved and doesn't rely on anything that we do, why that doesn't mean that we should just then go on living a life of um, rebellion and sin. Uh, Paul would get to that. Uh, but here he says, friend, that is logically cute but morally disgraceful. Don't play games with God. You try and swagger up to God on the last day and say, God, you owe me big time because I was such a big sinner and I made your glory shine out so much. You try and do that and you will receive God's holy and just condemnation. So, friends, uh, Paul says, of course the Jews have a privileged position. They have an advantage. Um... They have the words of God. They have an advantage when it comes to their history, when it comes to knowing God's words in a way that no other nation did. Uh, They have an advantage to that. But that, Paul then goes on to say in the next little section from verse 9 on, uh, that advantage, uh, they have an advantage in those terms, uh, but that does not give them any advantage when it comes to God's judgments. They cannot claim their religious identity and heritage as a free pass. They can't wave it 
before God. And what Paul does in this next section, the second half of our reading, is he kind of just gives this waterfall of Old Testament quotes, this downpour of these passages from uh, the Jewish scriptures, from the Old Testament itself. From uh, verse 9, he, go, he, he, he says, uh, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Well, he's just said, yes, of course the Jews have an advantage. But when we're talking about uh, whether that's an advantage under God's, uh, for salvation under his judgment, he says, not at all, in verse 9, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who understands. There was no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There was no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a pretty full-on picture, isn't it? It's a full-on picture of human sin. That's what theologians talk about as uh, the doctrine of total depravity. You might have heard it in those terms, which is not saying that everyone is bad as they, should, as they could be, uh, but the, to- the emphasis is on total. Uh, every part of us is affected by sin and the fall. Uh, every part of us is affected by that. It's also not claiming here in these, in these um, passages, it's not claiming that, that everyone has done these things. Your feet might not have been swift to shed blood. Uh, but the claim here is that while some of, us may, some of us may have been kept from the more extreme outworkings of our sin, the claim that the Apostle's making here is that on our own, in ourselves, without God, each of us, in ourselves, uh, is actually capable of doing great evil. It's um, not really a, a, a nice thing to, to talk about, is it? Uh, but it is fascinating and chilling, actually, how history, I think, has borne this out. One of the more disturbing books I'm in the middle of reading at the moment is a book called Ordinary Men by a historian. Called, uh, his name's Christopher Browning, not, uh, unless you want to look up the book up. Um, you don't need to know that. Uh, but this book is about a, a unit of ordinary middle-aged German policemen. Um, ordinary middle-aged, nice, respectable, well-educated German policemen who in 1942 were ordered to liquidate an entire Jewish village. Most of them had never fired a shot in battle and yet they carried out their orders without hesitation. Friends, the author makes the case that these, were, these guys, when, when we see people who do great evil, our tendency is to say that they're different from us. <laughs> they're, they're in some way totally deranged. But his point is they weren't twisted people. They were just ordinary men who were... Uh, and the Holocaust in World War II was such a shock to the world because it's such an extreme example of how ordinary people being put under certain conditions uh, can commit extraordinary evil. It's not just in history, though, is it, friends? 
I know this is hard to talk about and I'm not enjoying it either. Um, But it's not just in history, it's today as well, is it? Isn't it? From the millions of unborn babies killed each year to the epidemic of domestic violence to the hatred of racism to... I mean, you know, I won't go on. The claim here is that in ourselves there is only one type of human, a human that is under the power of sin... There is no one righteous, not even one. After all of this, Paul finishes his whole section in verse 19 and 20. We're all standing before God as our judge. And he says, we're all caught red-handed. And none of us have anything to say in our defense. The defense rests. (laughs) It doesn't rest after a compelling argument has been made. It rests because the evidence is too damning And there's just nothing to say. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that is to say the law there means, I think what Paul's using that word to mean is the Old Testament scriptures uh, that he's just quoted from. Whatever that says, it says to those who are under the law, to the people of Israel, to the Jews, uh, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Friends, what do we make of all of this? As I said before, um, one of the more intense passages in Scripture, I think, uh, and for us this morning. As we mentioned last time we in Romans 2, this is one of the um, commitments we have here at church, actually, is to preach through books of the Bible, uh, so we hear God's word to us and not just choosing things that we would like to hear for ourselves, Um, uh, because we need to, and God cares for us and loves us and gives us his word, Uh, is good for us. Um, But friends, it is possible, isn't it, that we might read up to this point, having heard God's word to us, that we are not righteous, that we stand under his terrible and just wrath and that we have nothing to say about it, it's possible to get to this point and still be speaking, still justifying ourselves, still fighting against God. Maybe um, for some folk, uh, our fight against God is a kind of outright rejection of him. That's possible. But perhaps more likely for some for us, uh, everything we've read up to this point, chapter two, using religion to fight against God. Um, perhaps in this chapter, using reasoning and logic to fight against God. Uh, friends, please, if that's you, please uh, take the opportunity today to stop talking to put your hand over your mouth and recognise that before a holy and righteous God you have nothing to say in your defence. Perhaps though, friends, for you, this is something that you have recognised in the past. Um, uh, But for you, you find yourself thinking that that's something that you in your Christian life move on from. 
right? We move on from this, don't we? Um, Paul is, 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 it's interesting, isn't it, and, and really important to, say, to remember that Paul's writing to Christians here. He's writing to Christians here, a mix of Jewish and Gentile Christians. He says this is true of them, and, and friends, it's true of us, as far as self-defense before God, self-defense, self-promotion, we have nothing to say. By our own goodness, we stand with everyone else under God's verdict of guilty. <laughs> Friends, it seems to me that that ought to make, if we really grasp this, that ought to make Christians the most humble, gracious, non-self-defensive people on the planet. <laughs> we all have a longer way to go here, but if you know that there's no one righteous, not even one, not even you, it'll change you, won't it? Uh, it changed in a couple of ways. Some of us friends um, uh, may be intimidated by other people. Uh, how much everyone else seems to have it all together. <laughs> it's possible to come to church and just feel out of place because everyone else seems to, have, to be so with it. <sighs> maybe you, on the other hand, maybe you do find yourself, actually, if you're honest, feeling... And thinking that you are in yourself better than other people. Before God, friends, there is no one righteous. The church is not a holy huddle for the righteous. It is a lifeboat for the unrighteous. It is a lifeboat for the weak, the sinful, like me. And like you. Like every person on this planet. There's no one righteous, not even one. And we never move past silence when it comes to self-defense before God, when it comes to self-justification. We never move past silence. But friends, just as we finish, I want to show you an incredible transformation that happens in the book of Romans by the end of this letter. When it comes to justifying ourselves, relying on our own goodness, we never move past silence. <sighs> But Paul has this wonderful transformation where there is a new kind of speaking that Paul goes on to talk about. The speaking, by the end of the, the letter in chapter 15, uh, it is not the proud speech of self-defence that's on view. It is a joyful song of wonder and praise. And it's not just for the Jewish people, uh, but for a, the, a new people for God. Jews and Gentiles together. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1 to 13. It's a longish um, um, sort of passage, and we'll get there in about 10 years' time. Um, but so we're not going to go into all, of, all the details, but do you see what Paul, how Paul um, sees this transformation taking place from silence to praise? Verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other, that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. There's lots in there, we, again, we won't go into, but let's keep reading. And moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God 
for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust, not in yourself, not in your own goodness, but as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the velvet backdrop has been rolled out. And I hope you'll come back next week. If you're on holidays, extend your holiday and stay for next week. Um, Because we're going to hear the news about what God has done to turn our silence into praise. To move us from being under condemnation before him to being under no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We can't bypass the silence, though. That's the only path into this song of praise. Uh, But having seen and acknowledged our unrighteousness, that will prepare us, friends, it will prepare our hearts to joyfully receive the righteousness that comes to us from outside of ourselves as a free gift because of God's great and overwhelming love for you. The free gift that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, friends, we need to stop. Uh, and it's been a, a, a... Well, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear from you, actually, how the last few weeks have been. Um, it is God's word to us. And I, I trust that as we keep reading, we will see how wonderful it is. How wonderful it is to be humbled by God and then lifted up. In Christ. Uh, friends, what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to pray together. We did this a few weeks ago. We prayed a prayer of confession uh, that kind of picks up on a lot of these themes. Um, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, um, you can read along the words in your head. Uh, but I'd encourage you, if you're able, uh, if you're able <laughs> to today, Acknowledge that before God you have nothing to say in your self-defense, no goodness to offer. Then please join me in this prayer of confession. That will lead into a song. Uh, it would be a good time for us to respond as we sing in reflecting, reflecting on these things. I'll say a few things and then we can all pray together um, before our God. Let's pray. Holy and righteous judge, we confess that like Isaiah we are people of unclean lips, but it is not only unclean lips we possess. We are people with unclean hands and unclean hearts. We have broken your law times without number. We are guilty of pride, of unbelief, of self-centeredness and idolatry. Affect our hearts with the severity of our sin and the glory of your righteousness 
as we now acknowledge our sins in your holy presence. Together, brothers and sisters, we have all had other gods before you. We have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have sought satisfaction in this world's pleasures rather than in you. We have loved to praise our own glory more than yours. We have taken your name in vain. We have prayed religious prayers to impress others. We have uttered your name countless times without reverence or love. We have listened to others use your name in vain without grieving. We have murdered in our hearts. We have often destroyed our neighbour with our tongues. We have been quick to judge others. We have considered revenge when we were sinned against. We have committed adultery with our eyes. We have loved temptation rather than fighting it. We have lusted after good things you have created. We have justified our lusts by using the world as our standard. We have stolen what is not ours and coveted what belongs to others. Our lives so often show discontentment, ungratefulness and envy. We have complained in the midst of your abundant provision. We have sought to exalt ourselves through owning more. We have lied to you and to others. We have told distorted truths, half-truths and untruths. We have despised the truth to make ourselves look better. Even in our confession, we look for ways to hide our guilt. If you, O Lord, kept a record of our sin, who could stand? How can we answer you? We lay our hands on our mouths. We have no answer to your righteous wrath and just judgment. We have no answer. But out of your amazing grace, you have provided one for us. Lord, shine into our night with the light of your wonderful gospel. Drive our dark away until your glory fills our eyes. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Praise God and Amen.